Pulse Audio Podcast Network. that time of year that makes misogynist cower in fear, where we celebrate all of the amazing ladies who prove we could do more than have babies. Cheers! It's Women's History Month, and I am Emily. I'm Kelly, and, and welcome. I love that. <laughs> it was going to be a song, but I had the tune for like two seconds, wrote down the first two lines, lost the tune, couldn't get it back, forgot about it. And then I was like, oh, shit, I have to do the intro. And then today happened. Uh, So welcome to Whining About History, the women's history podcast, where we talk about women from history you probably haven't heard of while drinking some wine. And we do this year round. So if you're joining us for Women's History Month because you just want to engage in learning about stories of women who have helped shape our world, welcome. Stay all year with us. We're here. It'll it'll be great. 52 weeks a year. Fuzzy feeling. (laughs) You know, we're kind of like Walmart. We take like one day off a year. Walmart doesn't even take one day off a year. Actually, this year they took off two. They gave their employees Thanksgiving and Christmas. Shocking. But yeah, usually it was just Christmas Day. That was the only day that Walmart was closed. Okay. How much of Thanksgiving do they get though? Because so many of those stores now, they open at like 4 p.m. Thanksgiving Day. I I think they went back to not opening until midnight or later. Okay. We'll we'll see if they revert it. (laughs) Post COVID, yeah, I you know honestly you, you know how everyone's blaming millennials for killing like diamonds and paper no not paper towels we're killing napkins yeah. because we use paper towels as napkins yeah because why I can get like eight meals out of one paper towel you right. guys <laughs> I'm very efficient but I think we're kind of killing Black Friday a bit because we're aware that one Black Friday doesn't actually have the best deals of the year. There's something called online shopping. Right, we don't. We all go hate out. people. We're we, all a bunch yeah. of cats. <laughs> well, we don't want to go wait in line. Yeah, I I went Black Friday shopping. I think two years when I was in college, and it was it wasn't even that I was going for deals. It was my friends and I running around town at all hours of the night just for the hell of it. Right. It, it was it was more of an excursion versus us like actually trying to get deals. And it was kind of exciting. Like, oh, I'm in the mall at midnight. Ooh. And I did work one Black Friday. I worked at um, Bath and Body Works, though, and it was a very small store. So we didn't have like, I don't have any crazy Black Friday stories because no one's going to Bath and Body Works for their doorbusters. The deals that start at midnight last the whole damn day, and no one's killing anyone over a scented candle and some lotion. So, where are we doing again? A podcast. <laughs> That's I think. right. I That's think right. That's what we're, doing. we're podcasting about women from history that you probably haven't heard of. And uh, we're actually playing with Kelly's new birthday present. From Yay. her loving husband. We he got has... a new fancier magic box. It's a big box, my friends. It's pretty. We'll take a picture. We'll put it yeah. on Instagram. It's all shiny and glowy and magic, and it's it's bigger and blacker than ever. And I can just mute Emily if I want. You bitch. <laughs> but uh, so if our recording sounds a little different... That's hopefully why, better. hopefully it sounds better. Hopefully this isn't going to be one of those episodes where I just have to like apologize you know next week like guys I'm so sorry you had to listen through that so yeah let's hope not because we're stuck with this now we're not going back 
So, Kelly, do you have a say their name for us? I do not. Do you? Um, I kind of do. It's uh, it's a bigger name than we're normally used to. So my say their name this week is uh, Henderson State University's Huey Library. I'm probably not saying that correctly. It's H-U-I-E. Um, because so th- this is a university out of Arkansas that I had never heard of before. Uh, I don't think Kelly had either. I had to Google it to be like, who and where are you? And they're starting a podcast club. So kind of like a book club. So they get members together on their Discord server. They pick a podcast to listen to every month. Like they pick a specific episode and discuss it. And for their first podcast club, and because it's Women's History Month, they picked us, you guys, as their first one. What? I'm out. Sorry, the 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 big magic box is gonna have to do some magic because that was uh, that was harsh. But uh, so last year around Women's History Month, we were actually mentioned in an article on Bustle. It was in a listicle of women's history podcasts to listen to to celebrate Women's History Month, and we were in there with a bunch of like other really amazing women's history right. podcasts. We where I was somewhere like, randomly where in the middle. We? I don't think it was like ranked. No, but but you know what I mean. Like it's not like we were like first or last where they could just pull open the article and be like, oh, I'm just going to take the top one. No, like we oh, were yeah, somewhere yeah. Okay, randomly I see what in the middle. Saying. Yeah. So I was, I don't know. I was just really thrilled. So I joined the discord server and uh, today they voted on which episode to listen to. Cause they were going to choose between our uh, episode where we covered Tenny C. Claffin mm-hmm. and Victoria Woodhull. Uh, the one where we covered Audrey Lord and Stephanie Kopchik. I don't remember Kopchick. how you Kopchick, who inve- who created Kevlar, Yay. or one of our more recent episodes where I covered Mae Jemison and Kelly covered Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yeah, that was just that's, like a month ago. Yeah, and that's the one that won. So they just announced it today. Hey, we're listening to this episode, and then they'll discuss it on the Discord server. I joined because apparently I'm a glutton for punishment. I am terrified that everyone's going to be like, what the f- Fuck. That would require <laughs> me requesting an invite to the Discord server, and I'm far too lazy. Oh, you don't have to. You just click on the link what in link? the Facebook post. Oh. Yeah. That would require me going back and finding the Facebook post. It's on our Facebook page, Kelly. <laughs> it is on our Whining About Herstory Facebook page. So, guys, if you're not following us on social media, you're missing out, because we posted about this last week. Uh, we're probably going to keep posting about it, because I'm freaking the fuck out. Right, just as it comes up. But yeah, so thank you, Henderson State University Huey Library staff. You guys are amazing. And like, I, I texted Kelly. I saw the notification on Facebook because they tagged us. And I was like, Kelly, what the fuck is happening right now? Yeah. Have you seen this? So I'm I'm just, I'm tickled pink. <laughs> I know, it's insane. I mean, we're so excited. We're well, so excited. Last Women's History Month, we were freaking out because we were mentioned in that Bustle article. And this Women's History Month, we're freaking out because we're being featured in a university's podcast club. Mm-hmm. Women's History Month is a good time for us. <laughs> I'm very, very concerned. They haven't started, like, they've posted it, but they haven't, like, actually started people, discussing it yet. Give people time to listen. That episode's over an hour. It's almost like two hours, I think. That was a long one. They're yeah. good stories, though. That's because Mae Jemison just kept doing notable shit. And then Sister Rosetta Tharp also kept, like, from day one, she was kicking ass. We covered women with very, like, full lives, except Sister Rosetta Tharp died way too early. And then you got mad at me about it. I did. Why did you do that? (laughs) You killed the cooking lady, too, and I was mad. 
I, I like to kill off my people. No, like that was a thing when I used to write a lot. The person that would like read my stories were like, stop killing people just once. I want a story where you leave someone alive. I'm like, okay, but I'm only leaving one person alive. Fucking Game of Thrones. <laughs> I'm worse than Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. No one was left alive. We had to start over as a as a species. Like, actually, we went extinct at the end of Kelly's stories. We should stop drinking the wine because we haven't even talked about it yet. Oh, Emily, yeah. what are we drinking today? Okay, so uh, we're revisiting our buddy uh, F. Stephen Millier. And that's how I've decided his name is said. I don't care what he says. Uh, and this is another one of my... Stephen, uh, hit us up. Stephen, what's up? We like your wine. Yeah. Oh, so last time we drank his rosé and I was really not excited about it, but it was, it was very surprising. I was so thrilled with it. So I accidentally bought two of these bottles. uh, So I hope it's good, but uh, we are going to be drinking his 2019 California Moscato. And I'm going to read the back in my sexy, sultry NPR voice that hopefully this big giant box will do justice. I have been lucky enough to be the head winemaker at a small, award-winning Californian winery, but I've always hankered after the opportunity to make my own special wines. So thank you for stepping in and supporting me, as without your financial support, it simply wouldn't have happened. I hope you enjoy it, and please, let me know what you think. That sounds like my emails. Right. That was written like an email. (laughs) I wonder if this was like his first wine with the company, so it was like... I don't even remember what the last bottle said. It could it could be the exact same thing. I feel like it was different. Yeah, that's what, like this myself. one. This one sounds like a a first wine back. Yeah, like I'm still getting a feel for you. Do you send emojis in your emails? I'm gonna keep it super profesh, so I don't like cross any lines. It's funny because with emails at work, I always err on the side of being overly professional. Yep, I'm the same way. And then I have clients that like email me back. Okay. Or like thumbs up emoji, and I'm like, or just don't email you back at all. And well, like, <laughs> I hate you. Yeah, well, that happens a lot too. So yeah, it, it's funny because I'm like, I'm trying to be super professional, and you just super don't care. Or uh, I, this happens in all electronic communications, but people who use ellipses because they want to sound non-committal. Lydia does that all the time, and I'm like, when I first started. Um, when I was first dating my husband, I was like, is your mom just like constantly mad at me or something? Is your mom a bitch? <laughs> or like, is she just, because I always take the ellipses as upset, not like. Yeah, I guess. Da, you da, know, da, da, da. and so like, yeah, and she's like, he's like, no, I just don't, like, I just, is she just, that's just what she does. And so he's like tried explaining to her several times, like, that a lot of people don't like that and like, why? And she's just like, well, it's just what I do. And I'm like. So now I just like don't, I don't care when it's her, but when it's other people, I'm still like, really? You know what's weird? So really? my, dot, dot, dot. my mom has her bachelor's in English. She has her master's in library science. She has done a hell of a lot of writing and reading in her day, but she texts like that too. My mother will text using ellipses instead of periods. And I'm like, mom, you sound like the sad, mopey, like, You sound like you're guilt tripping me all the time because you're doing this whole like, well, when you get a chance, da, 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 da. Like, I'm like, stop doing this Catholic guilt bullshit. I'm not having it. You're not making me feel guilty. You're just making me angry. I'm such a terrible daughter. You know, that's not going to work on me. So 
Kelly, what are we cheersing to? It's your wine, your cheers. All right. Well, cheers to our nice big black magic box. Heck yeah. Woo! Also, when does this come out? Hold on. Monday. Well, uh, duh. The 15th. The 15th. There we go. Also, cheers because Kelly's birthday is Wednesday the 17th. No, Tuesday the 16th. It's not St. Patrick's Day. No, it's the day before. That's right. So the day after this comes out. So happy birthday to Kelly. I'm not singing the song because it's copywritten. Cheers. Cheers. It's a more mellow Moscato. It's a little more, it's like tart, but it's not like those super sweet ones. Yeah. It's a good spring Moscato. It is because it is like actually spring and it feels like spring. Until like Tuesday and Monday when it's supposed to snow again. You know what? Shut up. Shut up. Get the fuck it's out of here with that. It's only a 56% chance and I'm like, maybe it'll just go down over the, the maybe weekend. Maybe it'll just rain. And it'll just not do anything. Yeah, it can rain. I'm okay with rain. I'm so excited for the ground to dry up because my pit bull Rocky, whenever he pees or poops, he likes to kick up the dirt behind him. Yeah, my dog's and he that. will come in with like chunks of earth between his toes and I gotta wipe him off and then he still gets dirt all over the house. Maybe and Jared it's like- do it. It's his dog. He won't, though. I know. <laughs> I'm the one who vacuums, so I'm the one that cares that dirt gets everywhere. Damn it. Right. At least you don't have, like, long hair dogs, because then they track leaves and shit inside. Oh, God, yeah. No. Nope. Nope. I've got two short-haired cheese and a pity who's missing, like, all the hair on his underside. Yeah. It happens. It's fine. So, Kelly, you're starting us off today. I am. I'm covering Hazel Scott. That name is super familiar. I know. I'm like, please tell me we didn't cover. We have not, but I, I must have seen her on a listicle or something. Then that or maybe is like ear floss covered her. I don't remember. Oh, so is she a so- singer? Yeah, she is. Wait, well, is she? No. Okay, real quick. Black singer went up against McCarthy. McCarthyism? McCarthy. McCarthy. I just... Re- started reading an article about her. Oh, that's funny. Because it popped up on my like, hey, you might be interested in this feed. And I didn't finish the article, but I was like, I'm going to save her for later. So I'm really glad. My sister-in-law, Caitlin, sent her to me. So Thank shout you, out Caitlin. Caitlin. Yeah, I wonder if she saw the same article. Maybe. Because I, I, I read like the first half of the article and then I couldn't finish it. I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save her. I'm, I'm going to... Checkmark. No, she sent me her Wikipedia, so no. I'm glad we're getting to her sooner rather than later, though, because she sounded like a goddamn badass bam bitch. (laughs) No, her her life's amazing. She's amazing. For a second, I thought you said her life sucks. (laughs) Her life's terrible. It's awful. We do have those stories. (laughs) She was born and then she died. Quickest kill Mm -hmm. off in the episode. (laughs) All right, so Hazel Scott. She was born in Port of Spain, Trinidad, and Tobago. I just love that there's a country out there in the world that literally has and in it. So she was born June 11th, 1920. So we're not going that far back. To R. Thomas Scott, who was a West African scholar from Liverpool, England, and Alma Long, a classically trained pianist and music teacher. I love that name, Alma. I do too. I don't know why. It's totally in... American Horror S- yeah, Story season, season two. two. Yeah, because uh, the one guy is in an interracial relationship with his the wife, Alma, Alma, who gets kidnapped by aliens. Yeah, it's weird. It's and a then weird... everyone thinks he axed her to death, and it's... Yeah, but then she comes back. Spoiler alert. Spoilers that's... for a 10-year-old season. Yeah. Shut up. <laughs> so she was a very precocious child, which I love that word, 
who discovered the piano at the age of three. Obviously, her, her mom is a music teacher. Yeah, and a pianist. Exactly. Specifically. <laughs> so Hazel surprised everyone with her ability to play by ear. She would often scream with displeasure when Alma, one of Alma's students would hit the wrong note. No one in the household recognized that this was because she had a sensitive ear to music. I like to think that her mother incorporated that into her teaching. Like her child, you know how like those bitchy piano teachers used to like smack your knuckles with a ruler if you got it wrong? No, this woman's baby just screams at you. Right, exactly. The baby knows how terrible you are. You have brought shame to this family. Right, like how terrible would you feel? Even a three-year-old knows you're garbage. Right? Um, So Hazel later said, like later in her life said, quote, they had been amused, but no one regarded my urge as latent talent, end quote. So one day, young Hazel made her way to the piano and began tapping out the, ry- the rhythm to the church hymn, Gentle Jesus, which was a tune her grandmother would sing to her daily at nap time. Aww. So they were like, oh, shit. I love singing to babies. Because that means she's playing by ear. Yeah. I love singing to babies, and I always want to, like, introduce them to, like, weird songs but like in lullaby form, like um, thunder only happens, you know, like yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. not going to say I yeah. won't get sued by Fleetwood Mac. That would totally ruin them for me. Funny, <laughs> Maybe I'd get to meet her. them though. Her. Her. <laughs> well, no, it's Fleetwood Mac. It's like four people. Is it? Four or five people. Yeah. It's a well, group. It's her in the band. Yeah, I guess. Well, Stevie Nicks is in it. Yeah, and that's who I always think of as Fleetwood Mac. Right, but here's the thing. I know it's a band because when they put out rumors, they were all like doing cocaine and fucking around on each other and they still put that album out. <laughs> yeah, you're right. So from the moment that her mother Alma learned that Hazel had this like latent talent, Alma shifted her focus from teaching music to pursuing her daughter's talent, basically, like and cultivating that and helping her grow. They were a very tight-knit pair. Like, they were a very close mother and daughter. And um, Hazel would go on to say, quote, she was the single biggest influence in my life. Her father, on the other hand, was kind of a tool. And oh, would end no. Up, yeah. Would Damn end, it. Would end up leaving the family when she was three to four. So when she was quite young and basically wouldn't have much of a presence in his daughter's life the rest of her life. Well, good. Get out of here. Like, right. shoo, get out of our story. <laughs> so once they were divor- divorced, Alma moved Hazel and her mother, Margaret, the one that was would sing Hazel yeah. lullabies. Um, the three of them moved to the United States. In particular, they moved to Harlem, New York, because center of black culture. Ex- well, and it's a big music scene. Yeah. It's a huge music scene. So they, and they moved there, you know, obviously for greater opportunities and to pursue uh, Hazel's musical talent. Um, By that time, which was, Hazel was about four at this time, she could play almost anything she heard on the piano. That blows my mind. Four years old. Like, I couldn't read at four years old, let alone play an instrument just by listening. Right? Good grief. There's a movie that came out in the early 2000s. It was one of those, like, Nickelodeon movies where Nick Cannon played a, a drummer like drumline drummer. And his whole thing was that too, where he could just like hear what it was supposed to be and then replicate it. Cause yeah. his whole, his that, whole stick exactly in the movie is he Hazel can't can read do. music and they can just replicate it. Everyone's like, you need to learn to read music. I'm like, why he's doing just fine. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, he's never going to produce his own piece of music, but does that, is that really required? I bet he could just like play it, like get it in his head, play it and, and then, then just, just have someone it write it down. Again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
So obviously her mother continued guiding her and training her, and she mastered advanced piano techniques and was labeled a child prodigy. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> In 1928, so Hazel is eight years old. She auditioned for enrollment in Juilliard School of Music. Oh, my God. However, students need to be at least 16 years old to enroll in Juilliard. I was going to say. Because it's a high school. Do they have preschoolers at fucking Juilliard? I didn't know they had an elementary program. (laughs) Um, However, when she, because you have to like perform in order to get enrolled in Juilliard. You have to audition. Yeah. Yeah. So she still got an audition. Like, maybe they didn't realize how old she was until she was there. And then they were just like, well, I guess we'll just let her play anyways. But so her she played Rachmanoff's Prelude in C-sharp minor. Don't ask me what that is. <laughs> um, but that made such a strong impression that Professor Paul Wagner accepted her as, like, his student. He was like, fine, you know, you won't enroll her in the school, but I'll still take her, like, under my wing. Oh, my God. Right. So she's getting taught by a professor of Juilliard and a few years later, like kind of when she was out of Juilliard, uh, her mother organized the Alma Long Scots All-Girl Jazz Band where Alma played the piano and trumpet and then Hazel would also play with her. Oh, I love that. So by the age of 16, I mean, she's rocking it up till age 16, but by the age of 16, Hazel was regular, regularly performing on radio programs for the Mutual Broadcasting System and had gained the reputation as a hot class classist. So not like hot as in like attractive, but like she played a lot of the classics and she played them very well. Okay. In the mid-1930s, she also began performing at the Roseland Dance Hall with the Count Bassie Orchestra. We've heard that name before. Yeah, I, I mean, believe, they're huge. I believe um, Billie Holiday performed with them. So did, I covered someone else that performed with them as well. I can't think of her name right now. It wasn't Sister Rosetta Tharp, was it? It might be. I feel like I don't that was think later. so, but I feel like we've covered other people. Maybe, uh, oh, maybe Peggy Lee. Maybe. No, that. Anyways, hardcore listeners, tell us. Tell us. <laughs> um, she also began a musical theater at this age, not like performing on stage, but performing in the Ork pit. orchestra. She played at the Cotton Club Review, sing out the news and the priorities, all with, all between 1938 and 1942. These were the shows she played for. And we've definitely touched on the Cotton Club before in our stories. I'm pretty sure Gladys yep. Bentley performed there. So throughout the 1930s and 40s, um, Hazel would perform jazz, blues, ballads, Broadway music, and boogie songs, as well as classical music, which was kind of her her original love. Um, yep. And this was all in various nightclubs. Like she would just kind of go from place to place and play music, giving various concerts kind of a thing. And this was all thanks to Barney Joseph, who is the owner of the Cafe Society, which we've talked about before, which the Cafe Society, as I mentioned before, but I'll say, you know, for our new time listeners, was Basically, the first venue to establish where it didn't matter the color of your skin or anything, you could perform there. Um, and this was actually, so f- from 1939 to 1942, there were two cafe society branches. That by that time, there was a downtown and an uptown branch. And Hazel was the leading attraction at both locations. So she would kind of just bounce between the two playing. Uh, her performances would go on to create national prestige for her. And it, they would call it Swinging the Classics. Because she, you know, she kind of jazzed up classic music. By 1945, Hazel was earning $75,000 a year, which today 
is 1,065,111. Jesus Christ. Uh, here's, here's the thing. You had me at 75. I was like, whoa, girl. And then in today's money, I just about choked on my wine. <laughs> I want oh, yeah. so little. So Hazel was one of the first Afro-Caribbean women to garner respectable roles in Hollywood pictures. So at this point, she's starting to act. Lena Horne was the other first one. They kind of started around the same time, but I think Lena Horne was technically the first. Mm -hmm. So Hazel performed as herself in several features. Notably, I I Doed It, D-O-O-D, I Doed It. Never heard of it before, but it did come out in 1943, so. <laughs> oh, that's probably why you haven't heard of it. Right. It stopped um, trending. Exactly. So I Doed It. <laughs> right. Broadway Rhythm. Uh, and in Broadway Rhythm, she actually performed with Lena Horne in an otherwise all-white cast. Or no, sorry. The Heat's On is the one that she performed with Lena Horne in an otherwise all-white cast. Okay. So it was her and Lena Horne, and then everyone else was white. I like to think that they were best friends. They're like, I see you. I see you, too. Let's fucking do this. Right. So it was on the set of The Heat's On, uh, which the main, the lead of this was Mae West. <gasps> I literally just learned about her from Jared, of all people. Huh. Yeah. Good job, Jared. So just real quick side note about Mae West, and you might get into this. She was like a super curvy, sexy. She was kind of like bomb. the Marilyn Monroe before Marilyn Monroe. Yeah, she was. She was a total bombshell, and uh, she she was known for saying all these sexy quotes. Like she was the one that was like, "Is that a something in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me?" Right. She did. That That's was her. her. She was like the one of the original sex symbols, basically. She yeah, was amazing. And so because of her curves. Uh, flotation devices in the military were called Mae Wests because when they were inflated, they looked like tits. <laughs> and she had a huge rack. And so, yeah, life vests were known as Mae Wests because it also sounds kind of like breasts and vest. So, right. but yeah, Jared's like, have you ever covered Mae West? Let's watch a video. <laughs> oh my God, I so, love. So it was all I about how Jared. like Mae West has giant tits and that's why we call life preservers Mae Wests. World War II, what a time. <laughs> right. It was on the set of the this movie that Hazel's characteristic brashness was kind of. So she was very, she was known for being very, like, she just spoke her mind. She just, that's what she did. I, I do the same thing. So, but it really came out here because, so in one scene where she played a WAC sergeant during World War II, Hazel was angered by the costume choices for the two black actors, or oh. two, for the black actresses. So they were given aprons to wear, like dirty aprons. And she complained, quote, no woman would see her sweetheart, sweetheart off to war wearing a dirty apron. It was it was an issue. Well, good for her because they're just like, I, I'm sure there were some like racial undertones, especially because for so long, like, have you ever seen those old ads for soap? Those old super racist no. ads? Well, basically this company was saying, our soap is so good, it will turn a black child white. Oh, God. Yeah, because it, it was always like, oh, you're dirty. And so for them yeah, to give these women dirty aprons and be like, this terrible. is fine for you. And to her be like, I don't fucking think so. Right. Good for her. So she decided to go on a strike. Oh, it went Hazel. on. It went on for three days until it was finally rectified by removing the aprons from the scene altogether. I love that they were willing to let her go on strike over fucking aprons. Right? Like, were they well, really she went on strike? Well, I don't okay. know about the rest of them. No, here's the thing, though. She's like, okay, this is super unrealistic, and I suspect you're probably being a little racist here. 
Just wear the fucking apron. No, this apron is so important to me that I will let you go on strike for three days because I'm going to throw a fit about my apron and my dirty apron that I want you to wear. Exactly. Like good for her though, for standing her ground. Cause it's, it's sometimes it's, it's seemingly insignificant things like that, that can really send a message. You know, making the black women wear these dirty aprons. It sends a message. It really, really does. So the movie came out in 1943. So it was probably filmed 1942, 1941. So unfortunately, this incident did come at the cost of Hazel's film career. Like a lot of people didn't want to hire her after that because she was seen as defiant. That, you know what? And and the thing is, if that's not a woman of color thing, that's a woman thing. Well, it's both. It's in because it's what we always talk about with intersexual feminism. She's a woman who's speaking out and demanding fair treatment, but then she's also a woman of color. So she's stepping out of bounds. Right. Like, no, 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 no. You don't get to say what happens to you. You don't get to have control. You have to be subservient to our wishes. Exactly. So she's, you know, it's, it's a woman thing. Yeah. But they're also super pissed because she's black and she's speaking up for herself and back at the white authority. So she would go on later to say, quote, I've been brashed all my life and it's gotten me into a lot of trouble. But at the same time, speaking out has sustained me and given meaning to my life. And that'll come up again later. I love it because she never has to look back and be like, I should have said something. No regrets. No regrets. I got plenty of those. (laughs) So in addition to these film appearances that she was making in the 1940s, she was also featured in one of cafe society's like big things that they were performing. It was called From Bach to Boogie Woogie. It was a series of concerts played at Carnegie Hall from 1941 to 1943. Damn. So she's making it big time. During this time, Variety reported, quote, Hazel Scott has a neat little show in this modest modest package. It's It's a most engaging element. Were they talking down to her there? No, they, they were saying like of this whole thing, like she's one of the reasons to go and watch it. Oh, okay. Because when they're saying like modest little show, it's like, oh, look at her doing that little thing over no, there. I Isn't that they, cute? I think she's small. Like I think they're saying okay. she's a modest package. Okay. I, I see. I'm like, what are you actually saying here? Especially like, I know the way people write and speak changes over time. I'm exactly. like, I feel like if someone said that now today, it'd be bitchy. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it was meant as a compliment. Okay. Um, so it was during these peak years of her career that she began to dabble in a little romantic relationship with a controversial preacher and politician in Harlem, like someone who's well-known in Harlem named Adam Clayton Powell Jr. At the time he was making a bid for U.S. Congress. But the thing that was kind of uh, interesting and kind of terrible about their relationship was he was 12 years her senior, married, and a reputed womanizer. Oh, I was going to say he's he's definitely married. Yeah. Fair minimum, mm. he's married. The 12 years, but, eh, but... He pursued her just unabashed. Like, he didn't care. He didn't care who knew. Like, he just didn't give a shit. He's like, that's who I want, and I'm going to go after her. Well, he's a womanizer. Of course he is. Right? (laughs) So it started out where she was super annoyed with him, and she was like, no, go away. Just go away. (laughs) Um, But eventually, irritation gave way to passion and love. A couple began seeing each other in secret at first, obviously. Because he's married. However, amidst a great deal of scandal, the couple eventually did get married in August of 1945. I assume at some point he got a divorce because otherwise that's highly illegal. I think there's a word for that. It's called bigamy and it's frowned upon. 
Right. And so here's the interesting thing. By the time they got married, she was the grand vedette, which is like the big wig of the cafe society. And he was the first black congressman from the East Coast. So um, a journalist from the time said, quote, they were stars not only in the black world, but in the white world. And that was extraordinary. I mean, that is really incredible because it's one thing to be known. Yeah. Like they say in the black world, because the black community was very tight and they were doing their own thing. Acknowledging oh, yeah, their like own they, had, they had their own newspapers that would well, actually the like larger society stuff. was like, just, just stay on your side of right. the line. Don't cross on my side. But then for them to bridge that gap and to become known figures in white society is huge. Right. So Hazel settled into domestic life in upstate New York. Her career ended up taking a back seat to being a political wife and a mother to the son they had named Adam Clayton Powell III, because why not? Um, she gave up nightclub singing at her husband's request, but while he was away in Washington, she would go and perform concerts across the country. So she wasn't performing in nightclubs, but she was still performing music. Yeah. You know, to, to have a third nowadays is to even have a second is I feel like it's or I I feel like it's a little more rare, but a third, like you never see that anymore. Yeah. I had a kid at the daycare, I won't say his name obviously, but he was a third and he had a name. I was like, Well, yeah, you gotta keep that going. Whenever you see like a third, it's never just like John Smith the third. No, it's like John Alexander Leopold, blah, 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 Smith the third. Yeah. No, it's he had a name. I was like, kid. You, you have better, to have a fourth. You you better do something real cool to uh, justify the power of that name because you were right. three and you were intimidating the hell out of me right now. <laughs> like, are you a prince's baby? Is that what's happening here? Right? <laughs> so obviously we know from her her Hollywood days, Hazel had no problem standing up for herself, for herself and the cause of the problems that whites had with African-Americans in society, basically. She would refuse to perform in any segregated venues while she was on tour. One time she was escorted from the city of Austin. She was escorted out of the city by out of Austin, Texas by Texas Rangers because she refused to perform when she discovered that the venue she was going to be performing at made the black and white patrons sit separately. And she was like, no. So I don't know why she got kicked out of the city, but she said no. And they were so, like, how dare you not be cool with our racism? Right. So she she told Time Magazine, quote, why would anyone come to hear me, a Negro, and refuse to sit beside someone just like me? Walker would have never let that happen. <laughs> right. This was, this was pre-Walker, Texas Ranger. He would have karate kicked a bunch of racists. It's fine. <laughs> right. So in 1949, Hazel brought a suit against the owners of a Washington restaurant when a waitress refused to serve her and her traveling companion, Mrs. Eunice Wolf, because they were black. She would go on to win this suit. Because this is 1949. Like, things are starting to change. Well, people are... The, the momentum that really culminated in the civil rights movement of the 60s started somewhere. And exactly. it was... I mean, it's been coming a long time. Right. But. So she won... Um, and Hazel's victory helped uh, African-Americans challenge racial discrimination in other cities. I'm sorry. Did you say racial discrimination? You said racial. You I said kind of tri- Rachel. No, I tripped over my words, but I said <laughs> racial. 
Do not discriminate against Rachel's. They're so nice. racial discrimination. I don't care if you didn't like her on Friends. Not all Rachel's. (laughs) Hashtag not all Rachel's. Hashtag not all Rachel's. Anyways. Damn it. But it, it helped open up the corridor essentially for other people to challenge the racism in that state because somebody already won so they're like hey it's that there's, there's a precedent here yeah. exactly well and it also gives people confidence because how many people were like i would love to sue over this but what are the chances of me winning exactly. I, I don't have a i don't have a prayer and i don't have the money to do it but once one person well especially since can she's win, such a big deal yeah like and so she would later go on to say that her victory helped, quote, to pressure the Washington state legislator to enact the Public Accommodation Act, which came out uh, in 1953, so only four years later. Thank you, Hazel. Yes. <laughs> so in the summer of 1950, so we're just moving a few years down the road, um, Hazel was offered an unprecedented opportunity by one of the early pioneers of commercial television, which was known as the Dumont Network. Not DuPont, Dumont. Mm. They offered her to become the first black performer to host her own nationally syndicated television show. Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. I know. So she was the solo star of the show. So this is, it's not even like, hey, come be on the show with like a white co-host. No, this is her show. Damn, Hazel. Right. It was known as the Hazel Scott Show. Oh my God. And they gave her her name. Right. She would perform pianos and vocals, often um, sing tunes in one of the seven languages she spoke. Oh, wait. I'm sorry. So she's a musical prodigy and she's seven languages. Septuplingual. But I suppose that makes sense because, like, if you think of like a lot of classical music, it's written in German, Greek, German, Latin, Latin you know. Yeah, it's not, it doesn't surprise me that she spoke multiple languages. Yeah, because music is often in multiple languages. Yeah. Especially the older you go, more dead language it gets. <laughs> the, more, the more satanic Latin. it starts to sound. Um, so a review from Variety of this show that she was doing said, quote, Hazel Scott's personality is a most engaging element in the air, which is dignified yet relaxed and versatile. I love it. It's like you could totally get a drink with her, but you know she's better than you. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) However, her TV career would be cut a little short. Did they try and make her more dirty aprons? No. Okay. So uh, with the advent of the Red Scare in in the television industry, Hazel's name somehow appeared on the Red Channels, which was a report of communist influence in radio and television that came out in June of 1950. You know what? I knew this is exactly where that story was going. I said it at the top, but I totally Romeo and Juliet myself where it's like, no, they killed themselves. And I like tricked myself into thinking maybe this has a happy ending. Maybe right. we can just skip around McCarthy and his goddamn witch hunt. Yeah, I'm just going to pretend that's not. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but in an effort to clear her name, because she knew she's like, I've never associated with communists. I am not part of the communist party. She was like. I want to appear before the House of Un-American Activities, which I love that. I don't know if that's a thing anymore, but if it is, I love that name. I think it was definitely a part of the McCarthy era it, no, Red it Scare. Definitely so is. just real quick, for anyone who doesn't know, in the 50s, we went through this whole like anti-communism thing where- I mean, that was the Cold War, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, it was during the Cold War. So kind of some understandable suspicion, but a lot of people use these like anti-communism fears to target artists, 
political yeah. activists, people Basically fighting for equality. They didn't want it was a straight so, up witch hunt. And if you were deemed, you know, to be a quote unquote communist, right. if you rode a train with someone they thought was a communist, you were a communist. They, they could kick you out of the goddamn country. They basically came out with multiple lists. So like in this case, it was specifically called the red channels, which was involved in radio and television. But there was one for like actors. There was the, basically they had a list for like every profession and then they just put whoever the fuck they wanted. Yeah. And we talked about this in the episode where I covered Gladys Bentley because Mm -hmm. she was a target Funny. Someone I've covered was too. Yeah. I can't remember who it was though. Here's the funny thing. That's actually how Re- Ronald Reagan met his wife, Nancy. I know. Because they were both actors uh, and Nancy's name had gotten on this list and Ronald Reagan was like a big shot amongst like the Actors Guild or whatever. Mm-hmm. So she went to him like, was like, please help me. Please help me. I'm not a communist. And they got her name off the list and they fell in love and then he became, you know. President eventually. Yeah. He was a thing. It was a thing. Moving on. So, like I said, she volunteered to go and clear, like, cause she's like, I'm, I'm, I have nothing to exactly. hide. I'm not, I'm not doing the things you're saying so I'm to, doing. Yeah. So to try and clear her name in, on September 22nd, 1950, she went and she read a prepared statement to them. She denied quote, ever knowingly connected with ever knowingly being connected with the communist party or any of its organizations end quote. However, she did state that she supported, not communism. I was like, whoa. I'm sorry. I started laughing. Wrong direction, honey. (laughs) However, she stated that she supported communist party member Benjamin J. Davis's run for city council, but she argued that Davis was supported by socialists, a group that, quote, has hated communists longer and more fiercely than any other, end quote. (laughs) They hated communists when you were still in diapers, son. (laughs) This this might be the, the part that ruined her, though. She also expressed her frustrations with the amount of false accusations, particularly against entertainers, yep. uh, and offered a suggestion, quote, utilize democratic methods to immediately eliminate a good many of irresponsible charges. So she was like, hey, like, get your shit together and be more democratic about this and you won't have as many false accusations. Well, she's like, you guys all see that this is a straight up witch hunt and you are just deciding who's a communist and who's not. And they use this to target people of color, political activists, LGBTQ plus people. That's how they got Glass Bentley because she was a black lesbian. Exactly. And then she suddenly started wearing dresses and was like, I'm cured of my lesbianism. And right, I'm I like, she oh, got honey. Married. It was it was a thing. It was just so um, tragic. What I love though is Hazel concluded her statement to the council with a request that entertainers are not already, quote, covered with mud of with the mud of slander and the filth of scandal when proving their loyalty to the United States. Because you're a weird artist. And we don't like you. So Unfortunately, as I said, her TV career was short-lived and the Hazel Scott show was canceled a week after she appeared before a week after she appeared before the committee. She would go on to suffer a nervous breakdown. Um, oh, Hazel. However, she did she did she did return to full health and she went on to play with Charles Mingus and Max Roach, who were bigger names Big of deals. the time. Yep. She continued to perform in the United States and Europe, um, even getting sporadic bookings on other television shows, um, such as Cavalcade of, of of Stars. I don't know what that is. I, I don't know. Cavalcade if of Stars. Yes, that. <laughs> I've like, never heard Cavalcade? of that. I've never heard of that before. Um, she also guest starred on an episode of CBS's Faze Emerson's Wonderful Town musical series. I have heard of that one. 
However, even though it was short-lived, Hazel's um, show, uh, quote, provided a glimmer of hope for African-American viewers during a time where there was so much racial bias in the broadcasting industry and acting in general, and there was a lot of economic hardships, particularly for jazz musicians, mainly because a lot of them were black. Well, we talked about this when we were on Ear Floss. God, that was like a year or two ago now. Yeah. At least a year ago. I think it was like a year, year and a half. Yeah. Uh, so we we covered Billie Holiday on Earfloss. Seriously, check it out. That was a lot of fun. Uh, Kenny's the best. And she got screwed yeah, she financially. Like they were paying her absolutely nothing to cover these songs. Ridiculous. Yeah. And they were making just hand over fistfuls of money off of her. And she it, it was at a time she didn't know what she was worth. And to be quite honest... Even even like the biggest black stars of the time weren't getting paid what a no. white star would get. Exactly. Hazel would go on to remain publicly opposed to McCarthyism and racial segregation through the remainder of her career. Thanks, Wisconsin, for right. getting us that fucker. And many others. When it, whenever I think of assholes from uh, Wisconsin, I think Ed Gein, Jeffrey Dahmer. Scott Walker. Oh, Scott Walker. That's a good one. That's that's, like that's a, recent. That's relevant. You know, McCarthy. Uh, and McCarthy. Yeah. I'm like, what the fuck, Wisconsin? Like, I know not everyone in Minnesota is cool, but come on. Well, come on. Yeah. Like, you got some big ass names. So as politics kind of got worse in the U.S. to avoid the fallout um, in the U.S., as many black big names did, Hazel went to France. Oh, my God. It's like, like Josephine third, Baker. This is like the third uh, black entertainer I've covered that they're just like, you know what? I'm going to France. Cause the U S you guys need to get your shit in order. You know, and while you do that, shit. I'm going to go somewhere where they're cool and they got baguettes and those things are delicious. Right. Give me my cards. So in 1957, she would move to Paris um, and she would appear in a number of French films. And then she would, in 1963, she would actually march with a, n- a number of, other African-American expatriates, including James Baldwin and a few others, um, to the U.S. Embassy in Paris to demonstrate support for the upcoming march in Washington. So they're like, you know, oh, we're wow. not there, but we're going to show our support where we can. I like th- I love that. Right. Also, I love that there were enough expatriates who were like, we're not getting the fair shake over in the U.S. We're coming to France. African-American expatriates, right, too. Like, right. Not but, like. There were enough of them to do their own march. Right, exactly. It wasn't just like a group of buddies taking a stroll to the embassy. It was a straight up march. Right. So she would not go on to return to the U.S. until 10 years after she left. So 1967. Wow. What an exciting time to come back, though. Right. By this time, the civil rights movement um, had already led to federal legislation ending racial segregation and enforcing the protection of voting rights for all citizens in addition to other social advances of the time. Yeah, this is a great time for her to come back. Um, Hazel continued to play occasionally in nightclubs. Obviously, she's getting a bit older. I mean, she's only 37 at this point. No, she's 47. like 40. Yeah, 47, which is not that old. So she like she yeah, like I said, she picked up her nightclub circuit again. She's she started doing um daytime television again. And she would um actually like go on performing in television for a while. Her her technical television acting debut, so this was not she wasn't performing on TV, she was acting. Yeah. Was in nineteen seventy-three on the soap opera One Life to Live. Oh my god! I I've heard of that. Isn't that still going on? I think Kelly, is that the one Kelly Ripa got her start on? I have no idea. But she performed a wedding song at the nuptials of her on-screen cousin, Carla Gray Hall, portrayed by Ellen Hawley. 
Love it. My mom's sit, uh, not sitcom, sorry. Soap opera was always all my children. And it's funny because she watched it all the time because it was on, but she's like, I don't really like this stuff. I was like, mom, tell me what everyone steal is. And she's like, okay, hold on. <laughs> right? Like she, she, she watched it and she was into it, but she was, was always like, I'm not like that into it though. Like it's, it's just something to have on. It's just the noise I like. And I was like, mom, you know, everyone's backstories in vivid detail you're into it oh i forgot to mention something because i have it as a like a sub note so while she was in france she got divorced from powell from uh, the congressman went to mary went on to uh marry his secretary who he was probably already probably (laughs) and then she would go on to marry a swiss italian comedian who was instead so powell was 12 years her senior this comedian was 15 years her junior She's playing both sides. However, <laughs> they would divorce shortly before she returned to the U.S. Okay. So on October 2nd, 18, 18. On October 2nd, <laughs> 1981, Hazel died of cancer oh. at the Mount Sinai Hospital in Manhattan. She was 61 years old, survived by her son, um, and she's buried at the Flushing Cemetery in Queens, New York. Uh, near other magicians such as Louis Armstrong, Johnny Hodges, and Dizzy Gillespie. That's where the nanny's from. Although I will say Dizzy Gillespie died after her. So really Dizzy was buried by her, not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. Stop trying to say Dizzy started it, you guys. No, I would say Louis Armstrong started it. Yeah. He started the trend. So legacy. Hazel was obviously a renowned uh, jazz pianist as well as being an actor and a classical musician and all of these other things. She also used that status to promote and shine a light on these issues of racial injustice and, uh, and inequality and civil rights problems, you know, and she, she was never afraid to like, be like, guys, this is what we're going through. Like, this is what you're not seeing. Her unique swinging style and fusion of jazz and classical music not only kept her in demand, but like then permeated the scene of jazz and classical music after her death. Alicia Keys has cited Hazel as one of her inspirations for her performance at the 61st Grammy Awards. My mom loves Alicia Keys. (laughs) Saying, quote, I've been thinking about people who inspire me. Shout out to Hazel Scott. I've always wanted to play two pianos. Oh. That must have been a thing Hazel did, even though I didn't see it. That's insane. In the year 2020, Hazel was the subject of the BBC World Service Program which was called Hazel Scott, Jazz Star and Barrier Breaker. Um, and this was part of the, the, their, the forum series. Okay. So yeah, that was, that was Hazel Scott. I'm so glad you covered her. Cause like I said, I saw that article and it opened up with about her uh, speaking up against McCarthyism yeah. and all that. And, and I was like, so much Oh more honey. Oh, she did. Oh, that's incredible. I'm, I'm, it's bittersweet. Because part of me is like, man, what an amazing woman. Like, she's so incredible. Oh, my God. But then part of me is like, just imagine what she would have done had she not been held back due to her, like, gender and particularly her race. Right. And the red scare and the lavender scare was going out at the same time. The and lavender it was, scare? That was, that was um, specifically when they were targeting LGBTQ oh, yeah. plus people. It they, was kind of like weirdly intertwined. It was, it was basically, the red scare was an excuse to weed out anyone who wasn't like straight white, you well, know, They would even weed out the white people. Like basically just anyone that was like, okay, you might be white, but you're talking about equality. 
Yeah, or like you're talking if you about, weren't you know, if you weren't fitting into this very narrow box of what it meant to be an American, they yeah. were coming for you. But yeah, I'm just I'm just imagining like how much further she could have gotten like today because she was clearly so gifted and then worked right. on refining that skill. What an incredible human being. And it just it's upsetting to see her kneecapped by such stupid right. Garbage. Well, think of how much good she could have done had she been able to continue her television show. Because I bet she, I could totally see her using that as a platform. Oh, and what a groundbreaking to thing, issues. too. Right. Oh, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. Hazel Scott, everyone. Thank you for sending her to me, Caitlin. Thank you, Caitlin. Oh, she's still swimming. I used to swim with Caitlin. <laughs> funny how, like, the world is so tiny. It, it really is. It's funny. So... Caitlin is Kelly's sister-in-law, who I went to high school with and was on the high school swim team with. I also went to high school with her brother-in-law, whom Caitlin married, and I went to the same college. college. I went to the same college that Kelly's brother-in-law went to, and that's how Kelly met her brother-in-law, who introduced her to Kelly's now husband. Yeah. And yet her brother-in-law still decided to take credit for the matchup at their wedding. And I'm like, bitch. <laughs> You're like, how do you think you met her? Yeah, I am the fulcrum of this relationship unless it goes horribly wrong. And that's all you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, today I am whining about Cheryl Marie Wade. Ooh. And actually, I have a... I don't I have, know who that is. I'm sure you don't because I had never heard of her. Uh, she doesn't even have a Wikipedia page. Which was shocking. I'm like... That is shocking. Okay. You have to start one. You guys, everything has a Wikipedia page. How does she not? She does have a New York Times Overlooked article Ooh. that was very helpful. So thank you for that, New York Times. So I, I actually have a friend on Facebook who is a disabled performer. And she shared an article. It was like a mental floss article about uh, disabled women from history. And I'm like, I clicked on it. I'm like, I definitely have read this article before. And so it kind of got me, Wrong Hill Kata, I think that's where I got her from because she was on that list. And there are a few other women on there that I would really like to cover in the future. But I decided to look up like, who who are some other disabled women from history that we should know about? And I found Cheryl Marie Wade and she's such a sassy little firecracker that I was like, done, I need to cover her. So nice. This is Cheryl Marie Wade, the queen mother of Gnarly. Done. Like, I I read that and I'm like, I'm covering her. We're done here. (laughs) So we are living in a time where we have unprecedented ability to communicate with others and people are finding a sense of community and pride in things that they had long been made to feel ashamed of. This is true for mental health, people of color, the LGBTQ plus community, and for the purposes of our story today, the disabled community. This is in part thanks to the internet, but back in the 1980s, if you didn't fit into a neat little box, finding a sense of community was a lot harder because you actually had to like meet people in person, face to face. What a nightmare. Right. That's bullshit. But Cheryl Marie Wade helped to lay the foundation for disability pride through the arts, literature, and a healthy dose of sass and sarcasm. Cheryl Marie Wade was born on March 4th, 1948. So like just a few days ago, just like last week. Uh, She was born in Vallejo, California, and she had a difficult childhood. Really quick, just two second warning. um, There is 
child sexual abuse. I don't go into detail. It's mentioned. So her parents were alcoholics and her father was sexually abusive. And that's all I say about it. But not a great childhood. No, that's terrible. Yeah. Terrible place to be born into. And things didn't get better when at 10 years old, Cheryl was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Now, rheumatoid arthritis, I heard it. I was like, isn't that like something you get when you get really old and your joints just hurt? This shit is no joke. It is a chronic autoimmune disorder, which occurs when your immune system begins attacking the tissues in your own body. It can manifest in severe joint pain, you know, thus the arthritis, but it can also manifest as fatigue and even attack your skin, eyes, lung, heart, bone marrow, nerve tissue, blood vessels, name something. This can come after you. At worst, it can leave the sufferer with severe disabilities and deform their joints. Unfortunately, Cheryl's case was severe. She had juvenile mm, rheumatoid yeah, arthritis. She's terrible. 10 years old. Usually you see it in significantly older people. Yeah. So this is a quote from her. Big toe, thumbs, wrists, and then everywhere just started hurting. All the joints started hurting. Wrists particularly. Wrists and thumbs and knees. Anywhere you move a lot. Yeah. I mean, and and like, what a nightmare. Like I had that hip pain. That was a nightmare. Like I couldn't take a deep inhale or laugh or speak when it was really bad. I can't imagine like every, everything feeling like that of my body hurting like that. So by the time that she was 16 years old, Cheryl had begun using a wheelchair part-time and eventually full-time. That sucks. So just a note, if you see someone with like a handicap, license plate or tag and they're walking around leave them the fuck alone okay right you have no idea what's going on a wheelchair doesn't matter if they look disabled yeah yeah a wheelchair is not the universal signifier of having a disability so leave them the fuck alone they don't hand those things out right i can't go to the quickie mark and get a handicap tag okay so just leave disabled people alone please we actually talked about that with kina Yep. She had yep. one of those and she had someone who was like leaving nasty notes. Yeah. Like what bullshit? I'm sorry. And she had an autoimmune condition and, yep. and that made her a lot of problems. Yeah. Like just, you know what? For living in a place where everyone just wants everyone to stay out of their business, we seriously cannot stay out of each other's business. Right. Anyway, sorry. Here's my rant. People in glass houses. One of potentially many. So I want to read an excerpt from a piece that she wrote later on in life called Sassy Girl, Memoirs of a Poster Child Gone Awry. Uh, So she was a writer, obviously. And so I was able to get a lot of really good quotes. And this is a little long, but this really kind of encapsulates a lot of things she's experiencing at this time. And I feel like it's probably very relatable for people with disabilities. So. Mother and daddy moved to the house while I was in the hospital. I'm 16. It's the time I landed in the wheelchair permanently. Every time as a visit me, they're raving on and on about the house. This great new modern one-story house with a huge backyard. And I'm excited. So jazzed. I can't wait to get home because I'm thinking how great it's going to be. Not like the old house with the stairs. I'll be able to come and go as I please. I'll have this freedom. And as we're driving up to the house, the first thing I see, three stairs, three goddamn stairs. 
How could you? How could you? If my own parents can't bear to look at me, if I'm invisible, even to these people who've known me always, I haven't got a prayer. I haven't got a prayer. I think this is just the way they want it. Me, dependent, them with all the power. And then it can go on forever. How wonderful you are the way you care for your poor crippled girl. I'm not being fair. These are my parents. I love mother and daddy. Haven't they sacrificed so much for me? They take good care of me. I have nice clothes, plenty of food. I love my mother and father. And besides, they're so cool. Everyone says I have the coolest parents. They let me smoke and drink when I was 16. I love my parents. It's a lot easier to hate the house. That's so powerful. There is so much to unpack there. Well, it's basically like she hates her parents, but she's not letting herself because it's easier to hate an inanimate object than it is to actually hate your parents. Yeah. So I, I'm just going to read what I have next because I kind of wrote out how I was feeling and I know I have the tendency to poorly express how I'm feeling when I have it written in my notes in a more articulate way. So there's a lot to unpack. And what I really love is how honest Cheryl is in describing a complicated array of emotions, the feelings of invisibility, resentment, guilt, and gratitude. Also, I feel like this is common for people in a rough situation or who have experienced trauma. She says it could be worse, exactly. you know, and Something else I noticed, though, she's saying she has cool parents because they let her smoke and drink. I'm like, parents who care about you don't let you do that when you're 16 years old, which is like also this extra undercurrent because if her father is abusing her, her parents are alcoholics, they're letting their daughter at 16 years old engage in substance abuse. Like, it's painting a picture, and I don't like what I'm seeing, and it's just... It's really eye-opening. This is just really indicative of the situation she's in right now. Yeah, that's that's powerful. So the rheumatoid arthritis made her a regular at the hospital as she underwent numerous surgeries. And I don't know exactly what surgeries she had. I know she had knee surgery at some point, but it sounds like joint replacement is a potential route to help relieve pain and improve everyday function for sufferers of rheumatoid arthritis. She actually graduated from high school at Sanford Children's Hospital saddest graduation ceremony ever. Can you imagine? Her first attempt to attend college was cut short due to the physical and emotional struggles that came with chronic illness. For almost a decade, Cheryl found herself trapped in severe depression and isolation. And things began to look up, though, after a doctor who had performed surgery on her knees introduced her to the electric wheelchair. And, like, imagine how difficult it must be to navigate the world in a wheelchair when your condition makes everything hurt and leaves you exhausted because just being fatigued is part of rheumatoid arthritis. And then having to move... Your joints oh, yeah. around her, her fingers, her elbows, her shoulders, everything hurts. And Cheryl said that the electric wheelchair, quote, changed my life. So in 1974, Cheryl once again enrolled in college at the College of Marin. This time she was happy to find there was a community of disabled students. And I'm just imagining like how incredible that would be. She's, this was another game changer for Cheryl. She said, quote, the only time I had ever been around Crips was at hospitals. And just real quick, she likes to use the term crips or cripples. Um, 
I, You're it's, not it's, using it as slang. It's I am how not, she referred to I it. I am not using it. I only use it in quotes or if something is named something like that. I think she found it empowering, but also like very in your face. And you'll find that's part of her whole style. Yeah. She's like, I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. And that's going to be a good thing. Right. So Cheryl became involved with the Disabled Students Union and eventually became its president and joined the student government. It sounds like at one point she transferred to the University of California, Berkeley, because there she was able to get help from their resident program for students with disabilities, which supported disabled students so that they could live independently. And this was the first time Cheryl had lived on her own. Wow. So she's finding community. She's living independently and has the resources to do so. Like, like the world must have just like opened up. Also, it sounds like she's out of her super toxic household. Right, exactly. <laughs> So this bit is for you, Kelly. Cheryl earned her bachelor's and master's degrees in psychology from Berkeley. And this bit's for me. Cheryl began writing poetry, essays, and short stories. She's like the best of both of us, but better. Right. (laughs) She didn't write much about her experiences with disability. That was until a friend of hers introduced her to the Rye Crips in 1985. And that's W-R-Y. So like... You know, not like rye bread, but like Mm -hmm. rye. I literally wrote, no, not those crips. (laughs) That's funny. That's what I was about to say. I was going to be like, she's going to make it not those crips. (laughs) Oh my God. So the Rye Crips were a writing and performance group at Berkeley, which was composed of women with disabilities. And this really helped Cheryl express herself. She said, what was fabulous about it was the feeling of being free to have a voice as a cripple woman, being free to sort of experiment with what I wanted to say about it, because I had no thoughts of saying anything about it until I joined them. Uh, by the way, the Rye Crips are still active. That's they awesome. have a website. They're totally a thing. And their mission statement is, quote, Rye Crips exists to nurture the neglected dreams and talents of disabled women. That's like kind of edgy, but also very relevant. And I love it. I don't know. Just nurture the neglected dreams and talents. I'm like... You guys are coming for blood and I love it. Side note, I read in several places that Cheryl founded the Rye Crips, but according to their own website, so I'm going to trust them on this, they were founded by Patty Overland, Judy Smith, and Dr. Laura Rifkin, but it sounds like Cheryl was an early member because she okay. joined the same year they were founded. Yeah, so she was like a founding, not a, like a founder, but like one a of founding the founding member. members. Yeah. So Cheryl fell in love with performing. She said, quote, being so sassy and so out there and so in your face that you can't deny me that only became that only came by the safety of the spotlight. I know that sounds crazy. People who have never been on stage, but it was years of doing that on stage before I ever felt comfortable doing it in life. The more I played the sassy girl, the more I was her as a cripple. So she's building her confidence and her voice in the safety of her performance. Because when you're performing, you can separate yourself from that person. Well, that's not me. You have like, I'm only like that on stage where people are expecting it, but she's cultivating her voice so that in, you know, everyday life, she can be like, what the fuck did you just say to me? Right. Exactly. (laughs) 
And it was actually the sassy attitude that had be, that would become her trademark. So Cheryl took this passion and experience and developed a one-woman theater piece called Sassy Girl, Memoirs of a Poster Child Gone Awry, which I quoted earlier. And uh, in this, she performed around the Bay Area and beyond. She also created another one-woman show, A Woman with Juice. And she's like really good at titling things because I love a those. Woman with Juice. It also makes me think of um, Lizzo. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I bet they would have gotten along. <laughs> so in her work, she explored sexuality, depression, body image, and more. She also confronted audiences with things that would make them uncomfortable. For example, in her poem, Hands, she describes her hands in which, which have been disfigured by the rheumatoid arthritis. So I'm going to read an excerpt from that poem. And I, I was going to like cut it to be yeah. shorter, but I was like, no, no I got to read this whole, this whole bit. So. Mine are the hands of your bad dreams. Booga booga from behind the black curtain. Claw hands. The ivory girl's hands after a decade of roughing it. Crinkled, puckered, sweaty, scarred. A young woman's dwarf knobby hands that ache for moonlight, that tremble, that struggle. Hands that make your eyes tear. My hands, my hands, my hands that could grace your brow, your thigh. My hands, yeah. <laughs> I just, I love that. My hands, yeah. Right. So she's like, describing yeah. her hands in this really like unflattering way, but she's like, I know that you're looking at my hands and this is kind of like what you're thinking. You're disgusted and disturbed by my hands, but they are mine, you know? So uh, she's describing her disfigured hands and also confronting able-bodied readers with their own discomfort at seeing someone with a disability. She's like, I know what you're thinking, even if you wouldn't dare to admit it. But she's also taking ownership over your hands. She's like, these are mine. Yeah, they do what I need to do. I have them. Like she said, Cheryl's in-your-face style made her made her hard to ignore. It's also about, she also bucked the expectations that disabled people could be relegated to the background. She's like, I'm not going to let you gloss over me. You have to pay attention to me and you have to listen to me because I'm not going to let you forget me or ignore me. Cheryl often referred to herself as a cripple because, quote, it's like a raised, gnarled fist. And this is probably why others dubbed Cheryl the queen mother of gnarly. But she's she's very kind of about making you uncomfortable. But it comes with a purpose. She's not just trying to be edgy for the sake of it. She's like, I want you to think about why that makes you uncomfortable. And I want you to sit in it for a minute and really think about it. Because if we gloss over things, you know, like... um able-bodied it's like no you're disabled and that's okay exactly and I think that's why she likes to make other people uncomfortable because she's like you know what you feel uncomfortable around me and you're just not established like you're not gonna say anything about it so I'm just gonna purposely make you feel that way well and the thing is she's kind of putting your feelings back on you as an able-bodied person like you feel uncomfortable and that's your problem and that's your responsibility it's not mine I'm just existing and I'm sorry if my existence makes you feel some kind of way but that's on you not me So in the late 1980s, Cheryl founded the Axis Dance Company, a dance troupe composed of artists with disabilities, and it's still around and going strong. And I read on their website that they integrate 
able-bodied performers and disabled-bodied performers to kind of show that like everyone can perform together and it's not like oh you have a disability so I guess this whole career is totally out of bounds for you you know and just showing like people with different abilities can come together and create something so beautiful and amazing and as if she's not already killing it Cheryl also made short films in which she explored the struggle she experienced as a disabled person, such as medical indignities, disability history, and she also addressed issues facing disabled people. And you know how much we love a woman sharing the history of unrepresented people. Good on you, Cheryl. Yeah. So side note, she ha- in one of her videos that's called Disability Culture Rap, and it's very 80s it's really cool but it's very 80s um so there's a section where she asks disability culture what is it about power and it cuts to like different shots of like disabled people yelling power and one woman is standing in front of the spoon bridge and cherry sculpture at the minneapolis sculpture garden which anyone from minnesota is going to recognize it but our other listeners might it's a giant spoon with a cherry on the tip of it mm-hmm. and that's in Minneapolis so yeah, I was like and I looked it up because I wanted I'm like I know spoon in the cherry is not what it's called so I want to use the actual name and it actually was installed in the 80s so it was pretty new around this time that the video came out yeah so disability culture rap won best of festival at the Superfest international film festival And it's really interesting because it is all about kind of making you feel uncomfortable and making you question how you view things. Like, well, why do I feel this way? Why do I think this? Maybe I need to address my own issues instead of putting on other people or ignoring an issue entirely. In 1997, Cheryl wrote an article about assisted suicide and how it posed a threat to disabled people. She felt that the, quote, death would with dignity movement was a response to the increased visibility of disabled people and that the term death with dignity itself was meant to be like soothing and to mask these. You're like, you're not disabled. You're able bodied. Like, let's call it what it is. Right. You know, like let's stop, stop glossing over these serious issues with flowery language. Um, So she wrote Instead of trying to fade into the nooks and crannies as good cripples of the past were taught to do, we blast down the main streets in full view. We sit slobbering at the table of your favorite restaurant. We insist on sharing your classroom, your workplace, your theater, your everything. The comfort of keeping us out of sight and out of mind behind institutional walls is being taken away. And because there is no way for good people to admit just how bloody uncomfortable they are with us... They distance themselves from their fears by devising new ways to erase us from the human landscape. And here's the thing. I'm not personally making a statement about the death with dignity movement because I do not know enough. But I think that that statement is that Cheryl made is totally valid. Oh, I agree. Because I definitely have had those experiences like as an able-bodied person, like I will admit I've like um, my uncle's wife has a son with a severe uh, mental and physical disability. I remember being a little kid and being like, I don't like, how do I do this? Because he's Mm -hmm. older than me, but he's, you know, doesn't have as many faculties as me as a child. And I was like really uncomfortable with it. Yeah. And so I'm just thinking like, yeah, the way I might view disability as an able person, able by person is not accurate. 
Because I, I have no idea. Like, how do I judge the quality of someone's life as an able-bodied person? Exactly. Like, we, there's, there's, it's just like mental illness. Like, you don't know. Yeah. Unless you have gone through it, you don't know. And it's one of those things that disability is an equal opportunity employer. It can happen to any of us at any time. Exactly. Uh, I worked in a group home that was comprised solely of women who all had at least a physical disability. Most of them also had a mental disability, but the thing, it it actually really unsettled me for a while because for all of them, it happened later in life. Uh, there was a car accident. One person was hit by a car when they were a little kid. One person developed MS. One person had an aneurysm. Like it was all stuff that came out of fucking nowhere. And it, it was just this constant reminder, like, this could come for me at any time. And that's why it's so important for us to listen to disabled people when they're saying, like, this isn't working for us. Or this isn't helpful because any of us could suddenly join that choir of voices. And wouldn't it be so much nicer if we didn't have to worry about it so much, you know? And if we help the people who are in that situation now, we showed some fucking compassion. So... Cheryl was an unapologetic figure in the disability rights and advocacy movement. She would not be ignored and made sure you couldn't even if you tried. (laughs) She had attitude and used humor and sarcasm to make her pieces entertaining for viewers while also challenging them. She refused to be relegated to the background or to be used to make able-bodied people feel good about themselves. She's, if she could see like the inspiration porn today, she would vomit. Like, look at this disabled person, like getting the groceries. Doesn't that make you feel so good about yourself? That's not why disabled people are there. They're not there to make you feel good or to make you like realize you can do things with your able body. Stop. Right. Exactly. On August 21st, 2013, Cheryl died in her home in Berkeley, California due to complications from her rheumatoid arthritis at 65 years old. That was so recent. Yeah, it was. I think we just graduated from college. 2009? No. No, that was high school. (laughs) Stop trying to make me older than I am. I'm already 30. (laughs) 13. Yeah. So, legacy. So, here's something crazy I want to point out. Like I said at the beginning, Cheryl was the first person I think I've ever covered that does not have a Wikipedia page. I couldn't find out where she was buried, even though she died super recently. So, thanks for nothing, findagrave.com. You bastards. But on the bright side, uh, you can still find a lot of of her writings and her videos online. Seriously, I'm captivated and I highly recommend everyone engages with Cheryl's work. Like that, that bit that I read from uh, sassy girl memoirs of a poster child gone awry. I was like, Oh my God. And she performed that on stage, like in a one woman show. I'm like what I would give to see her do that. I want it. I want it all right now. Give it to me. I need to see this. Yeah. Cheryl's legacy is that she was creating a culture of disability pride and advocacy before it was even a thing. And there's actually, uh, so the, the person I mentioned earlier who, uh, I'm Facebook friends with, she's a disabled performer and she puts on, they're doing this for the second year, the Disabilities Festival. That's D-I-S-I-B-I-L-A-T-E-A-S-E. It's a pun, which you know I love. So 
I accidentally closed the window because I was going to shout them out. I love you. It keeps trying to like tell me what I'm trying to type. It's like, you mean disabilities? Like, no. <laughs> So this is the second year that the Disabilities Festival is going on and obviously due to COVID is going to be remote, um, but it features performers from all over the place who all have some kind of disability. Um, there's a lot of burlesque. There's some like Cirque stuff. Uh, it And they have visible and invisible disabilities, which I think is so important because so often we like to judge someone's level of disability based on what they look like. Like I know growing up in the nineties, like every restaurant kids club had the obligatory wheelchair oh, kid. Yeah. And that's how I always understood disability. Oh, you're in a wheelchair. That's super not, not accurate. So, um, what they're doing is they're doing it virtually with a mix of live stream and pre-recorded acts from July 16th through 17th through the 17th. Uh, so you can find more information about that at disabilitiesfestival.com. That's D I S a B I L I T E A S E festival.com. It's super cool. This is the second year they're doing it. Supports and performers, especially during COVID. It's so important to per support performers right now because a lot of them have lost a lot of their means of income. So COVID's still a thing, guys. Let's support our friends. Yes. Yes. But that is Cheryl Marie Wade. The queen mother of gnarly, which is just like the best nickname. Yeah. The queen mother of gnarly. Hell like yeah. I would immediately think she was a skater because I, whenever I hear gnarly, I think like nine eighties, nineties skater. Yep. But yeah. Or a surfer dude or something. Yeah. She, I mean, she had a set of wheels. It just wasn't what you were thinking of. So Kelly. What are you thankful oh, for this you, week? I went first last week. Okay. You know well, what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for our big magic box that my husband lovingly got me. Oh my God. I feel like we have a third person on this podcast. It's always like whatever magic box we're using. Right. All hail the magic box. We're going to make that box. This merch. is like a super magic box. Oh, this thing is fancy. Here's the thing. I'm going to be really pissed if I put this audio on my computer. It sounds like shit. I'm going to throw this thing out a window. No, no I'm, I'm going to no, hit Justin not. over the okay. head with it. That's fine. At least I'll be using it for something. <laughs> um, I am thankful for a couple of things. One, Jared had a trauma anniversary this last week. And this is, uh, I was telling Kelly about this earlier, what I would probably describe as the most significant trauma anniversary of the year. Uh, and he actually did really well. There have been a few years in the past where he's just slept all day to like get through it. So he doesn't have to confront it, which is a way to cope. Uh, but I actually ended up being sick that day. Totally unplanned. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a bad girlfriend. I actually forgot because I'm just floating from like week to week and I don't actually I with know everything what day else going on. <laughs> but I, I don't think you should call yourself a bad girlfriend. Well, Kelly was telling me like your body knew because I was like getting ready for work. I was like, I just feel like fucking shit right now. Oh my God. 
And then I, I got, but he's like, I can't believe it's been 15 years. I was like, oh my God. Cause I normally have this day marked on my calendar and it's actually like an anxious buildup for me. Cause I never really know how it's going to go, but we had a, a nice chill sick day at home. And, uh, what's really nice. Jared's favorite band is 311. So the day immediately after the trauma anniversary is 311 day. <laughs> So he was listening to a bunch of their music and he always like has a much more like upbeat. Yeah. You know, it, it, it doesn't linger, you know, which it's like, good. which is good. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful that that went pretty smoothly. He had a, he had a pretty, um, good day, which was, was good. Um, the other thing I'm thankful for, I think I mentioned that we've been watching Jared's dad's dog, Max, the little chi puppy mm-hmm. who is forever puppy because he's like, he can just fit in like two palms of your hands. He's so wasty. He's tiny. Yeah. He's itty bitty. Um, I just got the word today. Like he's ours now. <laughs> we were not giving him back. Uh, Jared's dad kind of gave us his blessing. He's like, I think even if I wanted to take him back, it wouldn't work. Cause he, he has so much fun with Charlie and Rocky. And here's the thing. I'm in love with him. And I was, I told Jared, right. I was like, I know it makes me sound like a bitch, but I was going to be really pissed if your dad took his dog back. <laughs> Cause I love him so much. He cuddles with me, Kelly. He's my little spoon. He curls up in my chest I mean, around my butt. Charlie cuddle with He's, you? He curls up at my feet. Oh, okay. I kick him. <laughs> He's not as cuddly as night at, at night, but Max will like get right up in your business. And it's That's so sweet. So, cute. so I don't know. He does. So it's nice because now we can like, like get him to our vet. We can get him neutered if we want. Um, what you do? I'd super fucking do. Bob Barker would be rolling over in his grave if I was like, I'm not going to neuter him. <laughs> He'd come and haunt my nightmares. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's nice because it was kind of up in the air and like I was becoming more attached and then getting more anxious about the prospect of giving him back. Right. Uh, Plus, I was telling Emily that it's like the longer that goes on, the more attached not only will she get, but the dog will get to her. And then they then you have issues that way, too. Yeah. Well, and he's really bonded with Jared and Chi and Charlie. And Charlie. <laughs> Charlie the Chi. I'm, I'm used to just calling him Chi because he was the only one. Yeah. Chi. Uh, no, they play no, cheese all the time. Yeah, I, I'm working on my herd of cheese. I've got two cheese and a pity. <laughs> nice. Although when we watch my friends Chihuahua, I have three cheese and a pity. And they were all getting into it today when I was on my lunch break. I was like, oh my God, this is what it's like to have four dogs in the house. And I love it. I'm truly living the dream. So Kelly. Yes. Did I give you enough time to think of what you're thankful no, for? No, I what I'm thankful oh, for. Oh, well, I thought you were going to say more because you're box. like, no, I'm not going to go first. I you said it. All right. Well, good you, for you People then. say that, so people, there's technically no official name for a group of cheese, but people say they, they should be a chatter of chihuahuas. I've, I've seen that. I like that. So it's a grumble of pugs. I have a, I have a chatter of chihuahuas. During the day. Yes. They're so fucking cute. Oh my God. God. And they all want to be on top of you at the same time. I was sitting in like a little recliner and with three fucking cheese. (laughs) See, my dogs are content to lay next to me. Thank God. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sitting on the couch and they have to be where I'm sitting so I can give them attention. Right. Because they're all a bunch of needy little bastards and I love them. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Hopefully it sounds good with our big magic box. 
All hail the big magic box. Uh, please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. And we have an email, which is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you, whether it's suggestions on wine or women, or just, you know, letting us know how you're doing. We love you. We love you. Yeah. We got that super, I'm still thinking about that message we got from Melissa the other day, which by the way, Melissa, my meds are going pretty well. I'm not experiencing any terrible side effects. So yay. Right. <laughs> um, we also have a merch shop, which you can find on our website. Uh, you can also find it on Teespring, but I don't know what the URL is, but just go to our website. It's fine. Right. Uh, and thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And that's our big black magic box. Yay. Bye. Bye. Oh, have an empowered day. I know. That's why I didn't <laughs> say bye right away. Because oh, I was like, no. you're forgetting something, Emily. Two years and I'm already ruining it. Is that how long it takes to go senile? Apparently. Uh, it's because you hit 30 and you're just like. Yeah. Everything goes downhill when you're 30. Okay. One, two, three. Bye. Bye.